Conservationist Podcast. What kind of call is that? Just your basic yelp. <laughs> that was uh, quite the uh, week of turkey hunting. That was, yeah. 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 The last episode we released on opening day. April 15th. Yeah. And then we were out. I was out every single day. Yeah. For yeah, I was... Uh, I think I was out eight days total. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it took us eight eight days to get a turkey this year. So. Yeah. But it was a it was an awesome an awesome week in the turkey woods. Yeah, it was a really fun hunt. It was action packed. We had gobblers every single day from opening morning. We had a lot of really challenging situations and birds that were hard to work and yeah but uh man learned a lot i just i just love being in turkeys like i always said turkey season turkey hunting season for me is if i'm out turkey hunting it's like great that's made my that's made my year if i can hear a gobbler then that's even better if i can get a gobbler to respond to my call that's the next best thing if I can call a gobbler in that's even better and if I get one that's icing on the cake so yeah so we had we were calling birds every every single day and lots of um it was a really different year this year really different spring um I had trouble finding turkeys in my normal turkey area which I had done really good in the last four years straight and I think it was um the, the birds weren't in there before before the season opened, so other than I did bump into three, which I think was the one we ended up harvesting was part of that group way, way, way back on the hills there. But in the other hills that I normally hunt, they were just, they weren't there. And I think it was because it was a later spring and just a little higher in elevation in the valley bottom. There just wasn't yeah. the green vegetation. And... It wasn't until we dropped down in elevation a little bit where it was like, okay, here's where they are, and that's yeah. where we started hunting. And then the following week, second week into the season, started the second week, they uh, they had moved back in there because the greenery. I mean, they spent all winter eating dried stuff, yeah, digging around in the pine needles for seeds and stuff. So they want like a bear. They just want to get right to the right to the feeding. right to the green stuff where it's yeah. warm. There's going to be a few bugs popping out and stuff, so that's where we found them. So yeah, we uh, we filmed our hunt this year. Curtis filmed everything, so we're going to put yeah. together a uh, a film on turkey hunting in British Columbia. And uh, I don't know. I think maybe we'll we'll use that as a primer next spring, prior to turkey season. Get that out and yeah, and then uh, long as we get out of this whole isolation thing next spring i'll do some more of the turkey hunting workshops again that was disappointing mm-hmm. to have to cancel the ones in Kelowna and vancouver and stuff a lot of people were really looking forward to that so um 
yeah, maybe the turkey video will be kind of a good segue to the some more turkey workshops next yeah. year and then to hunting season. I really want to see people get out there and British Columbia and hunt wild turkeys. It's just so, so fun. Yeah. And we had some friends that did really well this year too. Some Peter and Bryce both got yeah their first turkeys this yeah, year. Three three buddies got turkeys. Guy yeah. I work with got a turkey. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, with uh, his bow, with right? His bow, yeah. Brandon, he just got a nice, great, big, mature tom. Yeah. Yesterday? No, day before Sunday. A couple of days ago, yeah. Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. And Clayton, who was on the podcast a couple times, he got uh, he got a bird. Mm-hmm. He was uh, he was hunting by himself. We we went out together last year, and he got his first turkey. And then this year was his. He was all on his own hunting, and yeah, it was pretty cool. We'd be texting each other in the morning sometimes. <laughs> He'd be giving me play-by-play, play, so <laughs> I was really excited. I'm yeah. so happy for for all those people to have got got turkeys this year. That's just that's just cool to see, and uh, people really really embracing this style of hunting and mm-hmm. yeah. realizing that they're maybe the most formidable game species that we have out there. For yeah, they're they're tough. Lots of lots of tactics, lots lots of decision making. Like, oh, do I do this or do I do that? Oh my God, oh he's a goblin. Oh, can he see me? Should I move? Should I stay still? Do I set up here? Which way is he gonna come? Oh my God, it's pretty. It's pretty fun. Hey everybody, um, welcome to the episode. It's Mark Hall, your host here. And Curtis Hall. Hope you're all doing well. Um, yeah, there's been some um, kind of cool stuff in the news uh, lately here in British Columbia. Uh, last week, uh, the provincial health officer had included hunting and fishing as an essential service under the the um, COVID management. So that's pretty cool. It means a lot to a lot of people in this province, just in their uh, you know personal health and mental health and enjoyment of life and also in getting your own food yeah i posted some stuff on social media i figured it out that wild turkey will produce about uh five six meals for five people so like 30 individual meals you know from the schnitzels to the tacos and stuff so when you think about being allowed to go out and hunt and harvest one wild turkey yeah that, that provides a lot for a lot of people in a short period of time so um if you guys don't know about it um jesse zeman from the bc wildlife federation and dylan Ayers, uh host of the eat wild podcast and myself we did a short podcast uh on sunday night i think a few days ago um dylan's got that out on podbean eat wild podcast and so we talked a little bit about um hunting and fishing and what it means to be included as an essential service um so i would encourage you to go um check out the eat wild podcast and and look at some of the the things that we said about that and how we interpreted how hunters um, can continue to go out and do their thing and stay consistent with the provincial health officers guidelines and in here in British Columbia the limited entry 
hunting regulations just came out, um, mm -hmm. the synopsis, about a week ago. Um, so that got people all excited. Um, one of the things that's confused people a little bit is there the government's got um, sort of a caveat around this year's drawings that if things continue with um, the COVID management that, you know, one of the key things they're asking hunters and anglers is to stay local. Yeah. And people are not quite sure what that means for applying for limited entry because, you know, people will apply for permits like in different regions and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think the salient advice there is just apply for what you would normally apply for, um, what you would like to apply. Um, first of all, you got to get drawn. So there's yeah. no sense in worried about what's going to happen in September if you don't get drawn. So put in for those tags that, that you normally, the places you want to go hunt and, uh, and then just, uh, if you get drawn, wait and see where things are in September and cross those bridges when you have to cross them. Um, if everything is back to normal, then, hey, you got yourself a cool hunt and you'll be glad that you applied for it. If, uh, if the local hunting kind of recommendations still apply, then, you know, then it's better that you've got some hunting locally and maybe yeah. you have to forego a, a trip up north or something, so... Right on. You know, um, coming around to today's topic, spring is a uh, is a time of the year where uh, I always looked forward to seeing the wildlife habitat burns that are going off on the landscape. Yeah. Usually, you get notices uh, in the media and stuff that they're going to be doing a habitat burn somewhere, just so people don't freak out and. You know, when they see the smoke and stuff, but, uh, yeah, this year, nothing, it's not happening. Um, probably a lot to do with what's happening with the, uh, with the pandemic. I know, you know, where we live here in Southeastern BC, the last couple of years have been a little quiet on the wildlife habitat prescribed burns the last few years, but, um, yeah, spring, the smell of smoke in the springtime, I always like that because it's just like, yeah, that's some mm -hmm. that's some new wildlife habitat getting created out there. So, you know, and uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about today is, uh, you know, kind of going through about, you know, the role of, of fire and wildlife population dynamics and, you know, how fire influences, you know, wildlife populations and... I'd like to dedicate this episode to some organizations here in BC that I believe um, are really key key organizations that understand how important the use of prescribed fire for habitat management is for wildlife in this province. And you know, the first one is the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation, which is where the surcharge off of all of your hunting licenses and tags goes into the foundation um, the foundation has for as long as i've known have always supported uh, wildlife habitat burns that the province has done in all of the the regions in the province so i would like to dedicate today's episode to them and uh, say thank you on behalf of all hunter conservationists that pay into that fund for uh, helping manage wildlife habitat and supporting fires. 
The other organizations that I think um, really impressed me um, and their support of the use of fire for wildlife management. And one is the Wild Sheep Society, the Wild Sheep Society of BC. Um, they have been, for as long as I can remember, they just get it. They understand how important uh, fire is on the landscape for all of the sheep species in the province. And, you know, it's not just, you know, when they, they support a wildlife burn, you know, it's not just for sheep. It, it'll it be targeting prime sheep range, but, you know, like a stone sheep burn up north is going to benefit goats and elk and grizzly bears and, you know, and everything. So, and moose. And um, another, another organization is the North Peace Rod and Gun Club up in Fort St. John there. Um, really cool club. If you get a chance, go onto the web and look up the North Peace Rod and Gun Club. Um, man, they do a lot of stuff. And one of the things that they do is they raise funds and they put some pretty big dollars behind some of the habitat burns that take place up in northern BC. Um, they can help support um, the burns in a number of different ways by paying for helicopter time. They might pay for the professionals that go out and do the assessments and prepare the habitat, um, the prescribed burns. They have a really cool um, draw every year. That is one of the ways that they raise funds, and um, they give they uh, raffle off a uh, a sheep hunt up in the Yukon of the Northwest Territories guided guided sheep hunt, and um, it the drawing was in March of this year. But if it's something you're interested in or don't know about, um, earmark that and and um, you know buy some tickets next year. Help support them because they are they are a club. Um, that does put some money back on the ground um, and especially into into wildlife habitat burn. So there's probably a few few more out there in the province that um, that should be recognized. So if you're one of them and say, hey, we put money behind habitat burns too, um, write us and tell us who you are. Um, and hey, good on you. Um, consider this episode dedicated um, to you guys as well. Fire is uh, is a really integral part of the ecosystems in British Columbia. Just about all of the of the myriads of ecosystems that we have in BC, um, some way, shape, or form, fire has played a role in those ecosystems. Even in the wet, you know, temperate rainforest and stuff, there's you know evidence of of you know fires playing playing a role. Um, you know, in those forests as well. I mean, British Columbia is one of the largest and most biologically diverse jurisdictions in North America, and um, and a big part of that is is historically has been, you know, fire has been a a mechanism in each one of those ecosystems that that um, helps shape shape the plant communities, shape the wildlife communities, and it's kind of interesting because they say that. Um, at the end of the Pleistocene epoch, when all of the giant 
mega herbivores, mammoths and all that died out, that the loss of those grazers on the continent significantly changed the plant community that was able to evolve hmm. afterwards. And with that came some climate pattern changes in North America that started to create the types of climates here in British Columbia that generated um, more lightning and more um, you know plant communities started to develop sort of from the from the tundra type communities into you know birch and spruce forests and all those sorts of things that started to grow more biomass and um, the combination of those two things um, they say basically is when British Columbia uh, entered an era of fire and it was essentially that change in in the fauna that changed the the ecosystems of BC and fire started to become a mm. major factor that shaped everything plant communities and wildlife that that basically succeeded the uh, the the assemblage of giant megafauna that lived in the Pleistocene so kind of started you know this whole fire thing sort of started in BC like you know 10 12,000 years ago so it's um, had been a long time for everything to adapt to that. Um, you can kind of take all the flora and fauna in the province and you can sort of lump them into two groups. Um, sort of species that are fire resistant and species that are fire dependent. And species that are fire resistant um, you know, it's like, it's kind of a funny term. Um, they can be resistant to fire in a couple of ways. One is their fire resistance because they use a strategy of avoidance um, or they're fire resistant because they have a strategy of tolerating fire. So I'll, I'll explain that. So a fire resistant species that uses the strategy of avoidance they can survive wildfires because they avoid them so i mean that's a you know a fair number of wildlife that actually just move away from fires but a, a really great example you know something like a burrowing owl that retreats underground into their into their uh, burrows and the grass fire brush fires would roll over top of them and they're basically you know, not affected. They're really resistant to the fire. Think of rock picas uh, living way up in some giant, you know, talus slope or whatever. They're fortified. Yeah. They're they're resistant um, to fire where they live, where they make their make their living. A species that's resistant to fire because it's tolerant to fire. Think of the uh, the ponderosa pine trees. Um, so ponderosa pine trees uh, evolved um, with very frequent fires in their ecosystems and uh, those trees can actually withstand having like 80% of their live crown burned off in a wildfire wow. and it won't kill them. Wow. Where, you know, you get like a Douglas fir tree or a spruce tree or, you know, a cedar tree or whatever and it just gets a little bit of flame, you know, kind of in, in the canopy and... Um, you know that it, it'll kill the tree so um, 
so that's a that's a strategy that a ponderosa pine tree has is it's tolerant to fire um, ponderosa pine and the big western larch both have like really really thick bark um, some of the big old western larch trees that grow in our part of the world can have bark that's you know around the base of the stump that's you know over a foot and a half thick and so that's a um, a way that they protect themselves from fire, from the heat of the fire damaging their living tissue. So mm -hmm. they're basically insulated. Yeah. So, so that's an example of, um, of species that are resistant to fire because they tolerate it. And then what's really cool is there are a tremendous number of species that are actually dependent on fire, both wildlife and plants in British Columbia. You know, so for example, um, the the um, shrub species Ceanothus, um, white Ceanothus or Ceanothus buckbrush, um, it's important. You know, browse species for mule deer. In order for that shrub to actually like regenerate, um, the seeds have to be exposed to heat from a fire, hmm. and those seeds will sit in in the ground in in the organic layer for like decades and decades and decades and when a fire burns over it then that heat releases the seeds hmm. and then there's a whole bunch of new plants will sprout up on oh, on wow. hillside I, i've actually seen areas where the the ceanothus shrubs are all were gone like you didn't find them there they'd all died out and then there was a disturbance like a fire uh, on the landscape and uh it may have been like after logging or sometimes you even see it where they burn the slash piles after logging and you come back a couple of years later and there's the shrubs growing all over the place hmm. and there were none there before the fire and that's just because the seeds are just sitting there sitting there waiting so so that plant is an example of a fire dependent species because it has to have fire at some stage of its life to complete its life cycle or to renew itself as a species. Um, antelope bitterbrush, um, another um, shrub that mule deer like in the southern interior, um, it requires fire to stimulate new growth um, from the base so the the plants can get super old and woody and stagnant and, and uh, if they don't have a fire um, sort of like you know, burn the top part of the plant off, they'll eventually just die because they don't have the mechanism to create new shoots to grow yeah. up, up from the bottom. So, so that's, um, you know, kind of a way of, of thinking about, you know, the assemblage of plants and wildlife in the province is, is their relationship with fire. And one of the really interesting things in British Columbia is if you take all of the species of wildlife that are dependent on fire somehow, um, you know, like elk are dependent on fire, moose are dependent on fire. So at, at some, a species that needs some, at some point or at some part of its habitat, it needs access to burned habitat, like for food or for nesting or, um, you know, at some, some part of its life cycle. So all the wildlife species in the province that are classified as fire dependent are actually species that are on the decline. Mm. And that just goes to show you how critical um, fire is as a, as a mechanism to 
um, a tremendous amount of wildlife um, populations in in the province. Fires, um, you know, they develop naturally, and the different climatic zones around the province develop different, you know, different um, plant communities, different forest types, different grassland types, different mosaics, and within those ecosystems and the climatic areas that they live in um, the natural fires that did occur in those areas kind of had some characteristics to them and they actually call call it a fire regime the fire scientists will call you know a certain area um, was adapted to a certain fire regime and a fire regime is basically a com combination of the severity of which fire burns at and how often it burns at and if a forest, let's say, of a forest ecosystem that um, that is very thick, very dense, um, that has a lot of fuel, but it doesn't see fire very often, not naturally, doesn't see fire very naturally. When there is a fire in that ecosystem, then the ecosystem burns, and it's pretty severe. Like, so you think of the big you know, yeah. raging forest fires where it kind of like, you know, consumes, consumes the whole, the whole forest. And, um, you know, and then there's, there's forests that may not have, or, or ecosystems that don't have as much fuel loading, maybe as n not as much biomass, maybe the, the plants are more open space. Think of the Okanagan, think of the Southern interior. Um, where when fires burned through those ecosystems, um, they weren't super severe because um, there's not as much fuel, you know, for the fire to burn. So the fire is not quite as intense. It doesn't, you know, um, consume as much fuel. And um, so the fire just kind of rolls through these ecosystems with, you know, a lot less intensity. Um, and those ecosystems, um, typically burned a lot more. They were in areas where there was a lot more lightning activity or a lot more human activity. And um, so there was the, the, the fires occurred a lot more frequently. And how often a fire occurs in an ecosystem is what the science, the fire scientists call like a fire return interval or uh, fire frequency. And that's basically, you know, for the most part, how often fires occurred in the given ecosystem was was pretty much controlled by the climate, you know, and and the weather of a particular region. You either lived in an area where there was a lot of lightning, you know, or you lived in somewhere where there was not a lot of lightning. Um, Aboriginal people in North America, they've come to learn, you know, so much more um, about their history and the use of fire as a management tool um, to um, manage wildlife populations where um, wildlife herds might congregate, you know, in a season or two, they used fire to, you know, purposely you know, sort of manage exactly what yeah. they did as they were managing the landscape with fire. Just, you know, they had that figured out um, tens of thousands of years ago. Um, so that the role of what they call anthropogenic fire or fire that was introduced into ecosystems by people has been 
pretty much recognized in North America as being like a part of the ecosystem. It's not like nowadays where if there's some fire started by some campers in the summertime, it's like, okay, there's like these human caused fires and there's these lightning caused fires and they, yeah. they give you the stats differently. They, the, uh, the fire ecologists basically look at fire on the landscape historically, um, meaning what was happening in North America prior to the Europeans arriving here as being a natural part of the ecosystem. And, and in some ecosystems, uh, in some parts of the province, um, the burning by people was, was very frequent, even just south of us here. Um, in the Tobacco Valley, Tobacco Plains Valley, right along the Montana border, there was a uh, fellow from UBC back in the 80s or 90s did a uh, did his master's thesis uh, where he looked at fire scars on trees down there, and there was a section of the landscape down there that was being burned uh, historically, saw fire every single year. Mm. You know, every year or every third year. You know, or or a, a really wide stretch was something like seven years or something, and they basically figured that it was an area that people were intensively burning probably every spring uh-huh. for for some reason, and it may have been may have been for you know managing ungulates. It may have actually also been for managing plants. You know, like the um, the the little plant bitterroot. Um, where they, people harvested the uh, the roots, a little starchy root on these things. Fire might have been an important part of keeping those um, those uh, plants healthy on the landscape. So um, yeah, so people people have played a role in shaping the ecosystems in North America through the use of fire for you know for a long long time. The um, these sort of like light, low intensity fires that sort of um, you know, crept their way through the ecosystems. They they call those fire fire maintained ecosystems. So the ecosystems were were um, were were lightly burned. Um, didn't kill a lot of the big trees. You know, rejuvenated the grasses and the shrubs. Maybe killed out some of the small trees so that the forest didn't get too thick. Um, ecologists call those fire maintained ecosystems. And the types of fires that burned in the ecosystems that um, they were more severe, um, basically, you know, burn a whole entire mature forest, and then it had to start that whole cycle of succession over again. Um, they call those replacing fires, you know, or stand replacing fires. So they were events that actually took a forest and like set it back 200 years, and then had to start out that whole process would start all over again. The there. And then there's areas on the landscape um, where the fire regimes uh, were what they called mixed severity fire regimes. So they're, they're ecosystems that had a little bit of these stand replacing fires that were fairly severe, that burned up a lot of the biomass. And then it had these fires that were lower severity, didn't kill as much, just remove the light fuels, those sorts of things, and, and there were ecosystems that had kind of a, a mixture of those those two things, and that's why they call them mixed severity fire regimes. 
And mixed severity fire regimes um, created what they call vegetation mosaics on the landscape. So you had like little openings, big openings, um, you know, thinned out areas, open forest, some grassy areas, some shrubby areas. And these areas um, they call fire mosaics. And um, they're some of the most complex ecosystems that we have in in British Columbia. Um, the plant communities, the ecosystems are complex because of this role of these um, mixed fire severity regimes that, that basically created all these different types of, um, you know, distribution and, and types of vegetation on the landscape. And that complexity on the landscape is really key. So the more complexity you have on the landscape, the greater your plant diversity is because there's lots of different habitats and niches for like lots of different species of plants. The more diversity you have in your plants, the more diversity you have in wildlife. And generally the more diverse, of, diverse that an ecosystem is, the more resilient that an ecosystem is. And um, resilient ecosystems are, um, you know, they, they're, they're better, more capable at resisting and recovering from, from stresses or disturbance um, that happen. So fire was a really, really cool balancing mechanism in the ecosystems. So hmm. now kind of like now sort of shifting you know, the discussion to kind of like specifically about wildlife. Um, the really key thing about wildlife populations, because that's what hunter conservationists are always, you know, sort of interested in, um, you know, a big part, is, you know, what's happening with the populations? Are they stable, increasing, decreasing? And wildlife populations are driven basically by two things. Um, the population is driven by adult female survival and juvenile or offspring recruitment. So if you have a wildlife population where the survival of your adult breeding females is very high and the survival of the offspring is very high the recruitment into the population is is high, then you have a population that's growing. So your, uh, your adult females and the survival of your offspring, um, that's basically like, that's the cornerstone of wildlife populations. And, you know, whether it's mule deer or moose or elk, um, mule, you know, white-tailed bucks, the population doesn't need um, a lot of males um, to get the breeding done. Um, but if you want a population to grow, then you need to be looking at what's happening to those drivers, yeah. which is adult female survival and recruitment of the offspring or survival of the offspring. And in pop wildlife population dynamics, um, there's these concept, a concept of called population regulators. So you got this population that 
might have high adult survival, might have low offspring survival, might have high offspring survival, um, you know, and not a lot of females in the population, like whatever. There's all these different dynamics that can take place out there. And a lot of different things are are acting on that population. And they call them regulators. So it's basically, you know, it's, if, if everything was perfect and there was all this breeding and nobody died, this population goes crazy yeah and just explodes and grows exponentially but you know outside of the bacterial world um you know for the most part wildlife populations have something out there that's going to limit uncontrolled exponential growth and wildlife scientists break this down into kind of like two two categories they call it top-down regulators and bottom-up regulators. So they're basically, you got this wildlife population that's like the the meat in the middle of a sandwich and you got this piece of bread on the top pushing down and a piece of uh, bread on the bottom pushing up and both of those things are exerting forces on the wildlife population. So top-down regulators of a wildlife population are the things that are consuming the wildlife population. So that's your natural predators and that's your human harvest Mm. and diseases. Bottom-up regulators are the resources that a wildlife population has available to them to live. And so that's their habitat and the nutrition that they can get from their habitat. So if you have high predation and high harvest, you got very strong top-down regulation on a population. If you have very poor habitat or very nutritionally stressed wildlife populations, then you have a population that's being regulated by very strong bottom-up forces. And sometimes it's not clear what's going on in a population. Um, sometimes um, a wildlife population can be stressed because it doesn't have good nutrition and the animals are not you know super healthy the offspring are not growing as fast or as big and so you know they're more susceptible um, to natural predation so you know then it it appears that uh, a population is is having a lot of top-down predation on it uh, where in fact um, that may be just a, a symptom of um, bottom-up regulators, meaning that its habitat or, or nutrition um, is not optimal for that wildlife population. And some of the, uh, the things that I've dug into in the science that talks about the importance of habitat and nutrition to those key two key factors of the population to the breeding females and their offspring um, really revolves around their spring and summer range. So basically the habitat that the offspring are born into and the habitat that they're going to be reared through while they're growing in their, their first year. And so that's like, you know, their spring, summer habitats and some of the stuff in the the literature that says when they have when their summer range is in really poor um, 
condition and the nutrition on that's available to ungulates on their their summer range where, where the offspring are trying to grow um, some of the impacts to populations um, because of poor poor nutrition um, their pregnancy rates can be reduced um, their offspring production rates um, can be lower um, the body condition of the adult females um, is much poorer. The survival of the juveniles, offsprings, is lower, and the individuals are much more vulnerable to predation. So these are some of the things that I've gleaned out of the literature that if, let's just say, um, a sheep herd, um, the ewes and lambs are on a summer range somewhere that is not producing a lot of good nutrition, um, the repercussions to that population through reduced pregnancy rates, um, low juvenile survival, vulner vulnerability to predation, all of those things are like, like cause and effect relationships from the fact that they're not accessing good nutrition on, on, their, on their habitat. Now this is kind of where fire comes into the picture here. So um, fire has a very large effect on the nutrition of vegetation after it burns an ecosystem. Um, fires help with nutrient cycling. Um, so fire is actually a chemical reaction. Um, so when it's actually burning, there's things happening at a molecular level. Things, atoms are being changed and yeah. things are being released and, um, you know, um, into the soil uh, in forms that plants can take up. <clears throat> so, so that's one of the things that fire does is it enhances nutrient cycling. You give plants more nutrients and the nutritional value of those plants is going to increase. So animals that come along and eat plants that have are growing up through through a burn um, in one way are more nutritional because they have more nutrients available to be more nutrition in the first place. Um, one of the things that also happens to plants um, after they've been burned, um, that rejuvenated plant that sprouts up um, has a higher protein content in the plant. So plants actually have proteins in them. Yeah. It's not just meat. And that's a really um, a key element in ungulate nutrition is the protein that they're getting out of the forage that they're eating. So, so the plants have more protein um, and the plants are more digestible. Um, so if you kind of think about you know, some grasses or some shrubs, you know, that are old, they kind of get coarse, they get, you know, you know, woody and stuff, you burn that off. And then the new stuff that grows up after that are these more succulent shoots. Yeah. Um, and when a, when an ungulate eats those, then they're able to digest them more because they got less, you know, cellulose and fiber in them. And so they're getting, they're extracting more nutrients out of these plants because they're, they're, they're just more digestible. And then the other thing that typically happens after a fire is you get a biomass increase. So you, you, you get 
after year one, year two, year three, you get more and more and more as these plants are recovering after the fire, you're getting more and more groceries growing on the habitat. And so that's where fire really comes in to play in my mind in influencing wildlife populations, benefiting wildlife populations is because it's affecting the nutritional value of their food and the factors that are regulating wildlife populations that I just talked about are directly related to the nutrition that those animals are getting on, on the landscape. So there's, in my mind, there's this really clear connection between fire on the landscape, the nutritional health of a population, and the ability of that wildlife population to remain stable or to grow. Mm. So th those two things are just really, really linked together here uh, in BC. Um, one of the things that fire also tends to do, um, especially in these stand replacing fires, um, you know, where you have a conifer forest, pine forest, uh, it gets, uh, gets burnt, kills the whole um, forest, and it sets, it sets that forest back to have to recover. And in a hundred years or two hundred years, it'll go back into this pine forest, and and at each stage in the development of that, from going from a burnt piece of land back to that pine forest, um, the, the the ecosystem will go through different stages, and they call those that that whole process is called ecological succession. And so, typically, after a fire, you'll get like a pine forest or a spruce forest. The first plants that start growing back are not always pine trees and spruce trees, um, but they're grasses and herbs and deciduous shrubs and aspen trees, and they call those plants um, pioneer species or, or early cereal species or early cereal um, plant community, and that phase of, of a burn ecosystem is one of the most critical habitats for a lot of wildlife in British Columbia, moose and elk and mm. deer and stuff like that. Because you will see animals browse on conifer trees, but they want to be browsing on the high nutritional stuff, which is herbs and grasses, willows, um, aspen trees, cottonwood trees, all of those plants that grow in those early cereal plant communities after a fire is the magnet. Um, you know, and anybody knows, it's like, hey, where do you want to go, you know, hunt moose? And it's like, well, I'll go back up in that such and such a valley in the old burn. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, you know, yeah. it's, it, that's why. Um, those old burns, um, they have that early pioneer plant community that persists, you know, it eventually dies out and gets succeeded by, you know, by uh, a conifer forest. That's just natural succession. But that that's not a problem for, you know, animals like, um, you know, moose and whatnot, because if the fires, fires are continually happening on the landscape, then this valley over here that was burned 25 years later, um, that early cereal plant communities sort of dying out and they're sort of like well 
then we'll just move over to this side of the valley because there was a fire there five years ago or ten years ago. So, yeah. so they're kind of always moving around the landscape as fire moved around on the landscape. Um, but those those early cereal plant communities are um, are really key um, and uh, to wildlife populations in the province. And that's one of the things where a lot of our ungulates you can classify those as being fire dependent because they're dependent on fire to create those pioneer plant communities that's providing a massive amount of their food, um, you know, year round. And so the nutritional gains um, that wildlife can benefit from, um, from plants after a fire, it's actually relatively short-lived. Um, within five to ten years after a fire goes through, most of the forage plants that the animals are eating on are getting back to close to having the nutritional value they did prior to the fire. So that nutritional bump for animals is relatively short-lived. The, the, the increase in the amount of groceries that are on that landscape, that biomass increase, that tends to occur over longer, like 10 to 20 years after the fire. So the nutritional value will go up and then it declines quite quickly, but the wildlife will continue to have more and more and more groceries on the landscape for you know 10 to 20 years after the fire and this is a really important concept in habitat management and the use of fire to benefit wildlife populations is the reburning of habitats it, it has to be done you know like every 10 15 years um, to keep the maximum value of you know that plant nutrition on on the landscape because um, if you just burn it once and then that's it, like after 20 years, the value of that to the wildlife is going to decline. Mm-hmm. If you're not burning something right next to it, um, then those those gains from from a prescribed burn for for wildlife, um, you know, might might last 10, 10 or 20 years. So you'll hear about that about you know re reburning areas, reburning the same areas over and over, and and that's why. Um, just because those gains uh, in plant nutrition is, is in the grand scheme of things, is relatively short-lived. Um, there was a study done in north, northern BC on stone sheep, northeastern BC, and these herds of sheep using lambs that had access to burned habitat, um, so within their within their home range, if they had access to burned habitats, those herds had higher lamb to ewe ratios than herds that didn't have access to burned habitat. Hmm. And they had lower incidence of lungworm in the populations. So increased nutrition, increased health of the habitat they lived on translated into increased health of those individual animals so so it's kind of cool um in 2003 there was the big fire in okanagan mountain park um just outside of Kelowna. Um, if you remember that it was it was pretty severe um it burned into the outskirts of town um 
you know, pe people lost their homes, uh, a lot of evacuations and stuff. And I think when it was all said and done, it had burned about 25,000 hectares of, you know, the dry, um, arid ecosystem habitat types that exist in this, in the Okanagan. But what was really cool about that, that area is one, um, the size of it was pretty big, you know, 25,000 hectares is, is pretty sizable chunk of ground, but they also had some data of wildlife populations in and around Okanagan mountain park, um, prior to the fire. So there's mountain goats, uh, in Okanagan Mountain Park um, and some mountain sheep that had been transplanted um, after the fire. And they also were looking at mule deer harvest and elk harvest. And the really cool thing was is mountain goats, mule deer, elk and sheep all had dramatic increases in their population after that fire. And the key thing was is that fire was big, 25,000 hectares. So um, the mountain goat population probably had the most dramatic increase. And it was a goat population that was pretty much on its way to extinction. Um, Ten years before the Okanagan Mountain Fire, they were down to like eight mountain goats. Mm. And ten years after the Okanagan Mountain Fire, that population had increased to 85 animals. Holy. So it's like a, you know, a 900% increase in, in the goat yeah. population. Wow. Um, hunter harvest of mule deer and elk um, both dramatically increased um, from 10 years before to 10 years after the fire. And um, some people say, well, maybe that's because, you know, the... Uh, you know, the habitat was uh, more open, you know, the uh, hunters were, were more successful because they could see more. That's a possibility. Um, but it's also a possibility that that habitat became such good ground that the elk and mule deer populations actually increased. And of course, hunter success was higher because there were more animals. So uh, the mountain sheep that were uh, transplanted in um, after the fire um, were were increasing by uh, increased by about fourteen percent. Um, so I mean I don't know of anybody that knows about sheep biology in the southern half, you know, the bighorns in the southern half of British Columbia, but if you said to anybody, it's like, hey, you could burn some habitat and see a 14% increase in your sheep um, population, um, I think people would be like, that would be amazing um, to see that level of growth yeah. in a, you know, in a sheep population. So, so this was a really cool kind of example for me. Um, you know, being interested in this stuff because it really sort of drove home uh, a point that I'll make here a little bit later. But it, when you want to start influencing wildlife at a population level, um, you know, across a region, the size of the fire is really, really important. And the Okanagan Mountain Fire being 25,000 thousand hectares um was a really good 
indicator of what happens to a wildlife population when when uh, when a fire is that big. Um, since since that since that fire in 2017, there was the big fires that burned in the province, and there was a really big one that burned in uh, in the southern interior as well. They called the Elephant Hill fire, and uh, that was a really really big fire as well. I don't remember the exact numbers or how it compares to the Okanagan Mountain fire, but um, that's part of the area where that southern interior um, mule deer study oh, yeah. um, that's, um, you know, there's uh, Dr. Adam Ford and Sophie Gilbert from the University of Idaho, the BC Wildlife Federation um, are all involved in this big cooperative um, forest lands and natural resource operations, uh, Okanagan Nation Alliance. There, There's this big cooperative mule deer study going on and I believe part of it is uh, is they're looking at um, what that mule deer population is doing after after the Elephant Hill fire. So it'll be really cool to, to talk to Adam about that. Um, but it's not just ungulates that, you know, that really depend on fire on the landscape as well. Um, grizzly bears uh, are highly dependent on, on uh, fire as well especially here in um you know in the southern rockies of british columbia um some of the work that's uh, the research has been done like by um by um dr bruce mcclellan um down on the flathead he's got years and years of data um that shows the response of um adult female grizzly bear density in the Flathead Valley as a relationship um, of the huckleberry crops. Hmm. So basically, you know, the grizzly bears were so dependent on huckleberries that they're, when a huckleberry crop was, was good for a period of time, um, uh, grizzly bear, female grizzly bear density increased. And then when there was a bunch of bad crops, then pop so they they were the grizzly bears would ebb and flow with um with the huckleberry crops and one of the cool things about the flathead valley which is you know in the very south eastern corner of british columbia you know against montana and, and uh, alberta is it is an area of bc that has had some of the largest fires uh, in the Southern Rockies have been down in the Flathead Valley. So huckleberries are a fire-dependent plant. And based on Dr. McClellan's work, it's very obvious that grizzly bears are dependent on huckleberries. Yeah. So essentially, um, in the South Rockies, you know, I think it would be fair to say that grizzly bears are a fire-dependent species. So, um, yeah, like I said, as fire's not, you know, it's more than more than just ungulates. So now, people will always say, like, well, doesn't nature just take care of this stuff? Um, you know, we've saw, you know, the last couple couple summers, maybe not so much last year, 2017, 2016, were a couple of fairly big record fire years in the province and it's sort of like well doesn't doesn't nature just you know take care of it and it's like it it does to a degree it's a little little bit more complicated but but the biggest thing is um 
yeah, we've had some big fires, but when you look at all of the province and all of the ecosystems and the frequency that the fires have been burning in those ecosystems, there's been a major change. And it's around 1850 where the fire ecologists, by studying the records, um, which they use by looking at tree rings um, in trees where they can, they can count when, uh, when the trees were subject to being burned. When they look at that data from, from fire scars on trees, just about anywhere you go in Western North America is they all find this point at around 1850 where the fires drastically were reduced in North America. And it's right around when the European settlers got to Western North America and started to influence um, the fire regimes. So people were putting out fires and they also, um, you know, as, as we know, the story here in North America, <clears throat> the tragic influence that the European settlers had on Aboriginal people of North America, um, which would have um, disrupted a tremendous amount of the fire management that that um, that they were using on the landscape for the benefit of wildlife management. So, so yeah, it was around 1850 where where basically humans came into the picture and disrupted that that fire cycle, and in British Columbia here. Um, there's another marked point um, in our history, which was in 1940, where that's the year that they sort of recognized where modern fire suppression, you know, as a as a as a sort of a military approach to fighting forest fires in the province of BC became, um, you know, hit its stride, and around 1940 is when we see a huge decrease in the numbers of large fires in British Columbia. It's it's when our fire suppression kicked in and and for the most part almost eliminated fires that were bigger than 500 square kilometers uh, after 940 or 1940. Um, so Fire suppression has been recognized as as sort of the uh, the leading modern cause of of you know the changes in ecosystems and the changes of mm. fire dependent wildlife species uh, because we're just so good at putting out putting out fires and the more and, and so this is the big thing that the fire ecologists you know uh, are concerned about what, what's happening now is is you've got this period from you know 1850 where we got fewer fires here in British Columbia. It's more so since 1940. Um, so a tremendous amount of these ecosystems have been sitting here for you know hundreds of years without seeing any fire, and so they're continuing to grow and stuff dies, and the dead fuel material biomass is building up in these ecosystems um, to a point which the fire ecologists say are, is not natural. 
So when a fire finally does happen, um, that ecosystem can be impacted more than what it's adapted yeah. to. Um, and, and then essentially, um, it takes that ecosystem longer to recover. Um, some of the plant species might actually like be completely extirpated, like killed by the fire. And then of course, um, it's not going to have that, that landscape is not going to have the value to wildlife, you know, afterwards. So, um, and, and that's one of the, the reasons where, you know, fire managers and fire ecologists and wildlife biologists are, are, um, you know, they're quite cautious about, um, you know, this whole idea of like, well, just let it burn, you know, if the fire's burning somewhere, then just like let nature do its thing. And part of, um, part of the story that makes it so complex is what, you know, what I just said is that sometimes, you know, a let it burn policy can be more detrimental to the ecosystem and to wildlife than, yeah. you know, than to have it burn. So, um, so, so there's some, some balancing, um, that they, they, uh, they have to make, um, they do, they do have places here in BC where they say, Hey, if a fire starts in here, we're just going to monitor it and watch it and let it do its thing. And wildlife biologists and, uh, fire managers have helped, you know, map some of these areas out in the province and, um, different, different places. And, you know, and they will just, um, monitor and, and watch fires as opposed to like jump on it and try to put them out. But, um, you know, and, and then conversely, you know, and I see this a lot in the media now where they talk about, you know, the bad fire seasons we had a couple of years ago. And, you know, they're talking about, oh, they're devastating. They're destroying, um, you know, the ecosystems. They destroy wildlife habitat and stuff. And it's like, well, not necessarily that that's happening in every single case. Um, you know, in some cases, you know, Fire can be catastrophic to wildlife habitat, and other cases, um, you know, it may not be. And one of the things that um, that I always see out there is um, people are concerned, like that the fires are are burn burn too hot, and um, you know they sterilize the soil, <laughs> and so that's a that's a big concern. Um, you know that, that keeps coming out in the media when when we have these um, um, these crazy fire seasons, and it can't be the case. Um, you know, if you have incredibly deep layers of woody material built up, then the time that a fire burns uh, on on the landscape is longer, and you can have more heat penetrate the soil, which can cause um, damage to plant roots and to soil structure. Um, but for the most part, the ecosystems are pretty well adapted to that. Um, the Canadian Wildlife, Canadian Forestry Service has a wildfire, fire research department. Um, at least they did. And they used to go into the Yukon in the spring of the year and they used to do these, um, research trials on big massive wildfires and so they would actually go in the middle of nowhere and put all of these probes and sensors in the ground and all kinds of stuff get it all set up as a, as a scientific experiment and then they'd light it up and they'd get these fires that were like hundreds of square kilometers <laughs> in these forests and just 
like infernos. You know, they were they they would measure the energy output from the fire burning these big forests, and they would kind of equate it to the like it was X number of nuclear bombs, like the Jeez. energy that was released, like unbelievable. But one of the things they discovered, because um, they would have like um, temperature probes in the soil, like gridded through these um, these these test burn areas, and um, even when the fire, the the energy intensity of the fire above ground was was you know on the scale of a nuclear bomb, the heat impulse, the 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 depth at which heat penetrated the ground below that was very minimal and they found like at two centimeters into the soil the temperatures had already decreased below 60 degrees celsius which is the threshold for causing tissue damage in a plant Hmm. so so these big forest fires can burn they can be massive flames shooting up out of the trees but for the most part, most healthy ecosystems, um, those wildfires are not necessarily destroying the soil or killing the roots of, of plants so they can't regenerate afterwards. Um, so it, it is a, a, a cool mechanism out there that, you know, the ecosystem, like I said, they've been learning and evolving with fire for, um, you know, tens of thousands of years. So they've they've got it figured out a little bit now the other thing uh you know that i've seen here in british columbia the last few few years um about wildfires is you know they're talking about um you know worst fire season on record um you know all these types of things i think in 2017 uh, there was around 1.2 million hectares burned in the province um that was a lot um before before 2017, I had crunched some numbers, uh, you know, in in British Columbia, looking at wildfires in the province, and um, it ranged between like 12 and 370,000 hectares a year, somewhere in there. Like it wasn't really that much for the, the size of British Columbia, and the fires weren't really that big historically in BC. We would have few large fires but we would have hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of smaller fires and this this number's probably changed a little bit but when i looked at this um i think back in 2016 the data up to 2016 which was just before the bad fire year the average size of a forest fire in british columbia was only 75 hectares hmm so they range from 12,000 to 370, but there was a tremendous amount of fires were anywhere from, you know, five hectares to a couple hundred hectares. So, you know, the average fire size was not, was not overly big. Um, a couple of notable forest fires that burned in British Columbia. Um, there was one in 1958 um, called the Ketch Fire in northern BC. It was 225,000 hectares, just one fire. And I believe that was um, in the Kachika Valley, um, the Scoop Lake Terminus Mountain area, the Rocky Mountain Trench in northern BC. So it was 225,000 hectares burned there in 1958. When I first moved to Dees Lake in 1985, there was a huge forest fire in the Kachika Valley 
um, that burned inside the perimeter of the fire that burned in 1958. Mm. Um, and it was actually a fire that got away by one of the provincial biologists that was on their burned <laughs> sheep habitat, and his fire got away and was uh, burned all summer long up there. So creating good moose habitat. But and then <clears throat> then there was a fire that burned um, kind of from the Fort St. John area all the way across into northern Alberta, uh, called the Wisp Fire in 1950 and it was 1.4 million hectares and I'm not sure but I think that may be the largest recorded fire in North America was the Wisp fire so in 2017 you know all the fires in British Columbia were 1.2 million hectares where in 1950 this one fire that burned um, across the provincial boundary into Alberta was 1.4 million hectares. And I always, I always kind of take a, you know, the concern <clears throat> over the forest fire seasons that, you know, that we have right now that always get, you know, thrown out in the media. It's the worst ever, the worst ever climate change, you know, and this sort of thing. And I'm like, if we've got a province as big as BC that for the last 10,000 years, all of our flora and fauna have been adapted to very frequent fires and large fires and uncontrolled fires for millennia. It's like, I'm thinking historically, the percentage of the province that burned every single year would was probably massive. Yeah. A 1.2 million hectare fire season in 2017 was probably a drop in the bucket. Yeah. I don't know if you go back 5,000 years, so... Um, but then people's homes and all that kind of stuff weren't weren't in the way. Now, where this sort of discussion about the size of fires um, kind of comes into play here um, with in wildlife management. So, thinking back to what I said, what we learned from the Okanagan Mountain Fire, twenty five thousand hectares, how amazingly the wildlife populations increased in the decade after that fire that was that was 25,000 hectares um, the size of fires that have occurred in British Columbia as a result of fire suppression basically meaning that we've got a lot of fires in the province but for the most part our fires are fairly small and not a lar- lot of really large large fires anymore in British Columbia and large I'm, I'm, I'm saying large is like more than 500 square kilometers like large and we know from the fire history data that in British Columbia after 1940 there was a huge decrease in the numbers of fires that were more than 500 square kilometers I looked at a bunch of our key wildlife species in British Columbia and I looked at in the literature to kind of get an idea of what their home range is. So uh, moose, elk, mule deer, mountain goat, mountain sheep, and grizzly bears. Um, I went through the literature and tried to get an idea of like in North America or northern North America, what's the average um, home range uh, of these species. And it varies, like moose have smaller home ranges of like 20 square kilometers up to grizzly bears, uh, which have some of the largest um, male grizzly bears documented it up to like 2,000 square kilometers, um, you know, being their their home range. So I went, 
okay, so what's what's the average um, across all those species? And it is roughly about 500 square kilometers. Hmm. Would be the home range that would encompass m- the majority of most of our big game ungulates in British Columbia. So 500 square kilometers would be a piece of ground that's 50 kilometers long by 10 kilometers wide, roughly, right? 50,000 50, hectares. So twice the size of the Okanagan mountain fire um, would be sort of a reasonable size that would encompass most of the home ranges of, you know, the big game species in the province. So if fire is that important um, to wildlife populations in the province and creating good quality habitat with very nutritional food, which creates all those benefits of high pregnancy rates, high offspring survival, populations that can be resilient, that can be stable, or that can be increasing, through that dependent on fire, for them to have access to good burned habitat on the landscape for species that have home ranges of 500 square kilometers, the size of fires that need to happen on the landscape, whether they're purposely created wildlife habitat burns or natural fires, they need to be big. And that's a really um, key message that I've been trying to push for a number of years, um, kind of in the conservation front and wildlife management, is when we get involved in supporting or helping to drive wildlife habitat burns on the landscape, we should be advocating that they're big. Um, They don't need to necessarily be big all at once, but you could pull off a number of burns over a five-year period that are concentrated, you know, back to back to back to back in the same chunk of land and cover, you know, a piece at at, at an end of a five-year period, you may have covered a you know, two, three, four hundred square kilometers of land. Mm-hmm. And then you're just like, there you go. That is going to be valuable for wildlife. Um, as opposed to what I've been seeing most of most of my careers, you know, they're kind of running around in the springtime, you know, doing burns that are, you know, 25, 50, 100, maybe a couple hundred hectares, at least in the southern part of the province. They're a little bit more lucky in the north. They can pull off some really big burns in the, in, uh, the sh- stone sheep, country and stuff just because nobody's there. there's nobody Nothing around there, yeah. so the other uh you know the other sort of argument i hear sometimes from a wildlife perspective is you know like there's a lot of logging going on on the landscape you just look at google earth and it's like yeah you look at that patchwork pattern that's all over the landscaping and say well isn't isn't that doing the same thing as as fire and at a very coarse level, yeah, it does. Removes trees, trees start over again. But I, I kind of think that's that's too simplistic, and I don't believe that logging or clear cutting um, mimics natural fire for a number of reasons. Um, like I said earlier, fire is a chemical reaction, and so when fire is burning plant material, woody material. 
um, there's a chemical reaction that's going on that's releasing nutrients that's not happening in the process of logging. Logging is not a chemical reaction. You'll get decomposition and stuff afterwards. You get nutrients released out of the rotting wood and stuff, but um, it doesn't happen on the same time frame as as um, as fire. And the other most obvious thing in my mind that differentiates logging from natural fire is after most fires, even the most severe raging crown fire in a f standing forest, after that fire's out, the, the trees are still there. Yeah. There's these burnt snags, and there's thousands and thousands of them. And some ecologists call those snag forests. It is still a forest and it still has value to wildlife as a type of forest. Mm -hmm. So everything from all of those standing snags become habitat for woodpeckers because the insects get into the dead wood. And, and even as you know, you get out in, into that burnt forest, you get a hundred meters back into it and it's like, nobody can see you. Like, cause yeah. you know, you're still obscured by all of these, you know, these trees are there. So for an animal, like, you know, a moose or a deer or whatever, it can still wander around in a burnt forest, in a snag forest and still have that security of knowing that it's not standing out in the middle of a moonscape, right? Yeah. It's got, you know, hunters can't see it. Predators may not see it as well. And... Even, even when a fire burns, you know, that severely through a big forest, I mean, you go wander around in there afterwards and it's like, there's a lot of life inside a burnt forest. Yeah. Um, stuff that starts to grow back fairly quickly, little pockets that don't burn around a little wet area. Um, these burnt snags um, provide shade. Um, you know, so that helps with retaining moisture. Um, eventually those snags start to rot and they fall over and start to create the big tangles. You yeah. know, that, you know, if you've ever hunted in an old burn, um, you know, there's a lot of windfalls and stuff. Um, that woody debris when it lands, you know, on the ground helps protect the soil you know, from, from erosion, from, you know, water erosion, it's going to decompose and put nutrients back into the soil. It creates all this extra, um, structure and habitat for small animals and grouse and snowshoe hare and all this kind of stuff. And what's really interesting about this too, is I talked to a biologist one day about this and when those burnt forests, um, they're they're burnt and all these snags are standing up we have a snag forest those trees are going to stay standing for you know 10 20 years and slowly start to fall over but then all of the willows and alders and all that sort of stuff starts to grow up underneath of it and then that's when the moose move in to these old burns and so they've got they can get in there and they can feed on you know on all these willows and stuff that are growing up in the old burn they have like i said they still have a forest around them they have some visual security um to be out there doing their thing 
but as that burnt forest starts to break down and the trees start to fall over and crisscross and get tangled up, we figured, the biologists figured, that one of the adaptations of a moose and their long legs is being adapted to living in those exact habitats. Hmm. So their long legs are a benefit in deep snow and in aquatic you know, yeah. uh, ecosystems. But we also sort of hypothesized that living in those dead fall areas where they're still accessing high quality willows and stuff, that those long legs were an advantage of getting through all of that stuff. And the great thing about that environment is they had a lot more, they were a lot less vulnerable to predation when they were living in these old burns with the tangled up trees that are all fallen over, they got the legs to get through that. So if you were a bear or a wolf pack that tried to go in to penetrate that tangle to try to mm-hmm. get at a moose, the moose probably had the advantage. So, yeah. so those characteristics of a burnt forest do not exist after they've been logged. Like, they're logging because they're going in to take all the trees. So, yeah. um, so that's kind of you know where the similarity ends in my mind is is um, the difference between clear cutting and um, you know a, a clear cut that's 30, 40 years old that's regenerated might be very similar to to a uh, to an old burn, but in those early years. Um, the snag forest and the benefit of all all of that structure that's left behind um, by a forest fire. I don't think um, clear cutting, you know, mimics that. And especially, you know, here in northern BC, we have like a really big issue uh, in in the northern part of the province, especially around the Prince George area and stuff where, you know, they, um, they're spraying herbicides on these cut blocks afterwards to kill all the willows and aspen and all that, all that kind of stuff that the moose like to eat on. Um, you know, that part of forestry, um, again, isn't mimicking what fires do because those willows and aspen and herbaceous plants and all that, that forms that pioneer early cereal plant community is what moose depend on up north and that that naturally that successional period is going to last for 20 30 years after a forest fire but when industrial logging's involved that's one of the things they're doing is they're getting rid of all of that stuff so that in my mind is another thing that's just saying like clear cutting on the landscape is not ecologically doing the same thing yeah. for wildlife that that a fire is um I mean, we used to do a lot of habitat burning, habitat prescribed burning in British Columbia for wildlife. Um, And we don't do that much anymore. And I got this really cool analysis that was done by um, a friend of mine, um, Peter Fuglum. He passed away last year, but he used to be the director of the wildfire suppression branch here in British Columbia and um, really smart guy and he, he compiled um, a whole bunch of data um, in the province going back to the early 1900s to 
to around 2016 or something like that, where he compared um, the area burned in BC by wildfires, um, the area that was burned for wildlife habitat burns, and area that was burned um, for slash burning, so the types of fires that were used on cut blocks after they were logging to reduce the amount of woody slash that was on it. And between 1982 and 1994 was like the heyday of wildlife habitat burning in Mm. British Columbia Uh, and slash burning as well in forestry. It was a very popular um, silviculture tool and and slash burning uh, has some really known benefits to regrowing a forest um, mainly because um, the soil temperature increases after the burn because you get rid of a lot of the woody debris um, and the black black ground absorbs soil. You plant trees, their tree roots are warmer, they grow better, they grow quicker, they have higher survival. So there, there is benefit to slash burning, you know, from a forest management perspective. But the, the really neat thing about between that that period, that decade between 1982 and 1994 is that the amount of land that was being burnt for wildlife and for slash burning and forestry um, was for most years in that decade more than what wildfires were burning in the province. Hmm. So in, in hmm. around... Uh, when is this around 1987-1988 they were burning about 170,000 hectares a year for wildlife in the province of BC and after then basically it was a downhill slide to around 2006 Um, it wildlife habitat burns you know on a provincial scale don't even really register on the graph there's just so few of them hmm. they're just the, the cumulative amount of hectares that are being burnt for wildlife um drastically drastically decreased um after 2006 so you know a lot of people out there that are you know sort of dismayed over you know, the state of some of the wildlife populations, you know, around BC, they'll look back to the good old days, you know, the 70s, the 80s, even up, you know, to the early 90s, um, and and use that as their reference about, you know, how good hunting used to be back, back in the 70s and 80s. And it's like, well, I mean, part of it was, is we were burning uh, a lot of wildlife habitat back then too. And, um, I'm, I'm sure there's got to be a relationship there in some parts of the province with uh, with what the wildlife populations are doing in some areas and and the loss of um, the loss of habitat burning and you know you know it's funny but it's you know back in those days the 70s and 80s wildlife managers and forestry managers they used to just like plan out their fires um, get everything organized, do a burn plan, look for the right weather conditions, and they just go out and get her done. Mm-hmm. And um, there seemed to be, you know, from the late 1990s um, onward, we started to see some of the impacts of fires on um, people's properties, 
homes. You know, there was Salmon Arm, there was Barrier, um, you know, even before uh, the, the Kelowna fire and the ones since then in 2016 and 2017. It basically like freaked people out. And for the most part, people are very, very scared to use burning on the landscape, especially in the southern half of the province. And it really freaks them out when I'm like, I'm like, oh, so you're going to do a 200 hectare wildlife burn? It's like, well, why don't you do 200 square kilometers? And people are like, whoa, 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 you know, I don't want to get, because <laughs> yeah. everybody thinks that, you know, if they're there, the, you know, the fire gets away and does something that um, people are going to end up in jail. But it's something has to give, um, you know, something's, you know, something's going to have to give and people are going to have to start you know, taking some more risks, calculated risk. It's not just about throwing a match out in the woods in August. Um, uh, there's a lot of science behind prescribed burning now that's just absolutely amazing um, what professionals can pull off uh, under the right conditions. And we just really have to get ourselves back to, you know, to doing more more habitat burns. I think the connection between wildlife populations, nutrition, and and fire on the land, purposely put on the landscape, is is a key thing for us to go forward. And, and that's why at the beginning I was, you know, sort of dedicated this talk to those organizations that that know this, that know this relationship and how important fire is to wildlife in the province, um, for exactly these these reasons. So, yeah. The, the small fires that, um, that I've seen planned out, you know, f over the last few years uh, for wildlife, I kind of, you know, I see fires that are like 20, 25 hectares planned out for wildlife burnings. And I'm like, man, it's like you can't sustain an entire sheep population of the Galton Range south of this here in a 25 hectare yeah. parcel, right? Like, I mean, should be looking at, you know, a sheep burn that, basically extends from the Montana border up to, you know, the Mount Broadwood area and all the way over into the wigwam. Like, that's mm -hmm. a burn there. Like I said, if it was staged over five years and, you know, different chunks, that in my mind is going to be a, a a mosaic habitat burn that's going to probably see, a, a, you know, huge returns in the sheep population of that part of the southern Rockies. Yeah, so that's kind of a uh, a rundown on fire, fire ecology, the relationship of wildlife and fire. You know, I think intuitively most hunter conservationists know that fire is beneficial for yeah. wildlife, but maybe not why. Um, I think people might be like, think, well, it clears all the like deady brush and tangled stuff out so they can get around on the landscape easier. Um, yeah, there's a bit of that. Um, but for the most part, when we're talking about fire on the landscape for wildlife, we're talking about nutrition and the health of the individual animals that are eating high quality food after a burn and the relationship of nutrition to the wildlife population, so that's that's the that's the message that I wanted to get across um, here, and you know for some some take home messages here for for folks, um, 
you know, one of the things I'd like to see hunters do in the summertime, um, even even in the springtime, you know, when there when there are habitat burns happening, you inevitably get all the people come out of the woodwork and they start bitching about the smoke. And they write letters to the paper and they call their MLAs and there's articles in the newspaper and stuff all about, you know, how bad all the smoke is. And, yeah, I mean, I can appreciate, you know, there's some people with, you know, uh, respiratory problems and stuff, but we have the ability to um, identify that in communities at a time and, you know, help people be away for the weekend or whatever. But one of the things I've always encouraged hunters to do is to be on top of that, the pulse of that um, vibe in their communities when there are habitat burns going on. And if people start bitching about like the smoke and stuff, then just jump right in and start countering that going like, Hey, I like these fires. They're good for the sheep herd on the mountains. And you all like to go walk your dogs and look at the sheep herd in the wintertime too. And, you know, we like to hunt them and stuff. And so like, this is good. This is good for the, you know, and just, just make sure that fire, especially purposely um, created fire for the benefit of wildlife is not, uh, this narrative doesn't continue to develop in in the papers and in the public forums that it's a bad thing yeah. because of the smoke. It's usually short-lived. So, um, yeah, that's something you, you all can do is, is, um, is get out there and drown out the, drown out the complainers when, when I always, I always had the saying that, uh, the smell of forest fire smoke is the smell of biodiversity. So mm-hmm. that's always one of my mantras. So, um, yeah. And I think the other thing, um, you know, people, you know, they always say like, you know, I always get people ask me, it's like, well, hey, what, what can I do? What can I do for wildlife? Um, what are some of the things, you know, that I can do? And if you're part of an organization or part of a club that's looking for something to do, um, I think one of the greatest things that you can do for wildlife in the province right now is to develop a relationship with your local wildlife managers, get some money on the table and say you're willing to pay for the, the biologist to do the burn plans for helicopters um, for whatever um, the costs are and work together and start identifying key areas and get the impetus behind getting more prescribed burns going in and around the areas that you know are valuable to wildlife and you know there's it's an important message to communicate even to your elected officials and and a lot of people don't realize this but fires placed on the landscape in a controlled way by professionals under the right conditions are going to have huge paybacks for wildlife but they can have huge paybacks in the summertime in the event of an unwanted wildfire starts because you've created fuel breaks yeah. on the landscape because you're burning for wildlife. And about five, six years ago, um, south of us here, um, you know where the Elk River joins the Kootenai River down yeah. there by Grasmere, there's a little a little community called Craigmont. Yeah. It sits out on a little point of land. Well, the spring before, they did a habitat burn just northeast of that community 
several hundred hectares. It wasn't super big. They logged, and then they burned it a few years later. A wildfire started up there, and it started moving south towards the community, and this little community basically sits on a little peninsula out into the Kukanusa Reservoir, and it's like there's one way in. And yeah. it, it could have been a really bad situation. And it's like they're scrambling to get air tankers and stuff down there. And uh, this fire roared along, hit this um, old burn from the year before where they did the wildlife burn on winter range. And it basically came to a screeching halt. So I think that's a really important, um, you know, message to get out there that, you know, fire can benefit wildlife, but it can also help fireproof communities. When, Safety mechanism, yeah, yeah, when they're when they're done together. So it's it's kind of a kind of a win win, um, you know, thing out there. And I'd like to see more hunters uh, and more hunting organizations in the province get back to you know where we were in the seventies and eighties um, and be huge advocates for prescribed burns. Um, and it can be done, uh, man. I see the state of technology and expertise that fire ecologists and fire professionals have down in the United States, and the stuff that they can do. Even, man, they used to do some of. That. I remember they used to do some of their habitat burned and stuff in like August. Everybody'd be sitting up here on like on pins and needles because it's the fire season. And then you know you look out the office window and there's this big smoke column coming up from just across the line in Montana and you're like oh my god and it's like you get on the phone and it's like oh no we're just they're out doing a habitat burn we got this yeah. got the right conditions and the winds are right and we've been waiting all summer for this and we lit up this mountain you know elk range and then the next day it rains and I was like how do they do that and it's like <laughs> but they can right I yeah. mean it's just weather forecasting uh, watching all the conditions and and they're a little bit more aggressive you know, when it comes to to use of fire. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I'd really like to see hunters get, uh, you know, get, get behind this. Um, this is a good thing. This is good for yeah. everybody. Um, and start, start harping on, uh, getting more habitat burns out there. So that's, uh, if you want to do something, help get some more wildlife burns going. So, you're in for the burn. <laughs> yeah. There's a hashtag for you. Hashtag yeah. you for the burn. Yeah. Yeah. Become a hunter in for the burn. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah, for, uh, HCTF that's spending our hundred dollars wild sheep foundation, North peace or wild sheep society of BC, sorry. in the, um, North peace rod and gun club. Um, thanks for all the work that you guys do on putting fire back on the landscape for wildlife. That's awesome so to sum it up um if there's three things that you're going to take away four things um from this conversation is that fire creates complex landscapes complex landscapes create plant diversity which creates wildlife diversity which creates resilient ecosystems fire improves plant nutrition Fire makes ungulate forage more palatable, more digestible, with more protein and nutrition. And when you improve the nutrition on ungulate summer spring range, 
you can have an influence on creating higher pregnancy rates, higher offspring production, better female body conditions, higher juvenile survival, and a population or herd that has lower vulnerability to predation. Those are the three key things that wildlife habitat burns do at a population level for wildlife. And the last thing you can do is what I just said, join an organization and start helping wildlife managers get more burned on the landscape. Yeah. Cool, everybody. Sweet. Hope, hopefully you uh, enjoyed that. That was good. And, um, yeah, pretty soon, uh, hopefully we can have um, some guests on. We're going to look at doing some remote stuff maybe next time, see how the sound quality is. and Yeah. And you don't have to listen to me talk for <laughs> for the whole hour. So, uh, yeah, everybody, um, thanks for listening. And, hey, it's uh, there's still two weeks left in turkey season in BC. Uh, if you're out there still hunting away till the till the 15th of may good luck if you got any questions about turkey hunting reach out to me i've already been talking to a bunch of people that have so just go on the website at thehunterconservationist.com and use the contact form and write me or find me mark lr hall on instagram or curtis hall Curtis Hall underscore. underscore on Instagram. Yeah. Message us and say, hey, I got this going on with the turkey. How can I get it? Yeah. And send us pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Send us some pictures too. So uh, good luck turkey hunting. Uh, good luck bear hunting. That's what I'm going to start on next here and try to get some more bear meat in the freezer. Looking forward to that. Yeah. And thanks for listening, everybody, and we will talk to you in the next episode.